Tangier, Morocco. These people are rich. It takes money to build walls that high and to keep a full-time guard watching them. Those soaring palm trees draping the compound in cool shade are a luxury unknown to the poor. An expert gardener cultivated those red poppies blooming so lavishly. Hidden behind the walls at the end of a long winding corridor, three elegant houses open onto a shared courtyard. The tiles alone had to cost a fortune, not to mention the marble fountain gushing all day in a city where water is rationed. But Zara Abadi, a pretty 17-year-old, is blind to the beauty of her home. As she rounds the final turn of that corridor, every fiber of her being is focused on getting through those locked gates and tasting freedom. The year is 1965, and this is a harem. Hi, I'm the Anthro Girl. Welcome to the premiere of our podcast. It's for people with a fascination for cultures, folklore, and storytelling from around the globe. Each episode is inspired by the field research of eminent anthropologists. And this week, we're going to explore life in a modern harem. Do you find it surprising, maybe even shocking, that harems existed in the 20th century? It seems almost impossible to the American mind, doesn't it? Safe to say that gender equality is a fundamental American value. But before we get too judgy, remember that here in the United States, women were denied the vote until 1920, nearly a century and a half after the first American election. And what about that pesky Equal Rights Amendment, guaranteeing equality under the law regardless of gender? Well, it was first introduced in 1923, and it was soundly defeated. Since 1978, the ERA has been before every single session of Congress. And it never passes. Women still do not have equal rights with men under the United States Constitution. Surprising. Care to debate which societies are more sexist? Well, that's not what we do at the Anthro Girl podcast. Here, we try to look at cultural values and practices strictly through the lens of anthropology. And so we ask the questions, how does this practice support the unity and stability of the group? What is its social function? Has it adapted to changing circumstances, or is it a relic of history that will soon die out? Let's revisit our fictional harem, looking at it through this lens, and see what we think. Zara's young cousins, Hadija and Dries, her co-conspirators, are with her. She softly shushes them, then nods at Mustafa, the gatekeeper relaxing on the torn recliner he keeps by the gate. The children watch as Mustafa pours himself a glass of mint tea, then spoons in lavish quantities of sugar. They look up at Zara and nod back. They've memorized and rehearsed the plan many times over, and they are ready. In exchange for two packs of chewing gum, the children will distract Mustafa so that Zara can win a few hours of freedom. Her more fortunate school friends, growing up in modern families, are already drinking café au lait at Madame Port's on the Boulevard du Paris, and Zara's heart is set on joining them. Taking a rubber ball from the pocket of her jalaba, she aims carefully and throws it through the bars of the gates. Khadija has her cue, and running towards Mustafa cries out, Asidi, the ball! My ball! Dries follows, pretending to scold her. You're so clumsy, you can't even catch. Why'd you throw it so hard? Mustafa, please, it's my new ball. 
Shaking his head and tisking, the grandfatherly guard unlocks the gate to amble after the ball. And Zara, bunching up her long robes in both hands so they don't trip her, runs out behind him. But the shocked looks of the Tanjawis witnessing Zara's escape quickly alert the harem guard. He scans the crowd with narrowed eyes, quickly spotting her and muttering, Hashuma, the Moroccan Arabic word for shame. He knows he's been tricked, and he knows it's as much as his job is worth if he doesn't catch the girl and return her immediately, pushing his way through veiled women, trying to skirt Jalaba-clad men with fez, the guard slowed by age and the uneven cobblestones of the Medina is in serious danger of losing Zara. She glances back over her shoulder to see Mustafa losing ground. Her heart pounds with excitement and she can almost taste the café au lait and croissant au chocolat waiting for her. Then Ahmed, a worker in brass and Mustafa's cousin, recognizes Zara and steps out of his shop, which is literally no more than a hole in the walled city, and blocks her path. His shock and concern are genuine. Miss, what's wrong? Why are you alone? Before the girl can pivot around him, Mustafa arrives. Through gasps, he repeats the word for thank you over and over to his cousin, Shakran, Shakran, Shakran. Now Ahmed understands that Zara is a runaway and he uses his bulky body to block her path while Mustafa struggles to catch his breath. Mustafa's exact age is unknown. He thinks 40 or 45, but due to a lifelong habit of smoking gitan, the filterless Moroccan cigarette, he looks and feels a decade older. This run has done him in. Cousin Ahmed makes things worse when he dramatically inquires. She is outside without a chaperone? How did you let this happen? Do you want to lose your job? And how will you pay your rent and feed your family when you lose your job? Mustafa is embarrassed, but he has to keep up appearances. So he waves a dismissive hand at his cousin. Don't pretend to understand your betters, he says. Aware that he's speaking nonsense, but desperate to recover his dignity. Rising to his full height, he takes his errant charge by the upper arm to lead her back to the harem. But she jerks her arm free, and now Mustafa faces a dilemma. Zara is the eldest child of the eldest son in the Alawi family, in every way his social superior, someone he doesn't dare tussle with, especially not on a public street. But neither can he let her leave the harem. In a strange way, he's both powerless and all-powerful, so long as Zara accepts the rules of harem life. In an equally strange way, the girl has to consent to her own confinement. It's a standoff. Then, a passing man swivels his head to keep bold eyes on Zara. He wears two or possibly three pairs of hand-me-down pants for decency since none of them has a zipper any longer. His plaid sports jacket is pilled and missing buttons, and when he smiles at her, she can see he's missing several teeth, the ones he has left stained yellow. Mustafa raises an arm as if to backhand him, but the man ducks and continues on his way, pleased with himself. Mustafa turns to Zara. Do you see what happens out here? I would have been in the French Quarter by now, if not for you. There are bold men on the boulevard too, child, not just the Medina. But Mustafa finds it impossible to be stern with a girl he loves like an uncle. And so he pleads, Will you please come home with me 
and not make me have a heart attack. Their bickering continues as they walk back together. Why can't you ever look the other way? One time. Just one time. I'm only doing my job. I need this job. Would you have me put out on the streets? Khadij and Dries cling to the gate bars and gape as Zara and Mustafa approach. He humbly gestures her to enter ahead of him. She rolls her eyes, but obeys, pushing the gate which the children ride as it opens. Irritated, Zara claps her hands and snaps, Zid, Zid Yela, and the little ones jump down and take off, disappearing like magic into the cool darkness of the passageway. Zara speaks to Mustafa, her tone still that odd mix of haughtiness and subservience. Are you going to tell my father? Mustafa collapses on his recliner, his heart still pounding from the exertion and anxiety. Shaking his head and looking heavenward, he begins. I was here at this gate the night you were born, Binti, he says, calling her my daughter. Her lips purse and she shakes her head. If she's heard this story once, she's heard it a thousand times. I went to the mosque to give thanks for delivering us a healthy girl. Zara cuts him off impatiently. Are you going to tell father? He shakes his head. No. All I ask is you keep in mind my age and not force me to chase you in the streets. My heart isn't strong anymore. Zara clicks her tongue against her teeth, so upset she's almost speechless. Finally, she speaks. It was just a cup of coffee. Her voice quivers, surprising and annoying her. Mustafa nods sadly. But she doesn't want his sympathy, understanding, or affection this afternoon, although they've been lifelong friends and Mustafa is like a member of the family. Pivoting, Zara quickly disappears into the passageway to the courtyard, where her tears can flow freely and unobserved. That's all I wanted, a cup of coffee on the boulevard with my friends. drama was inspired by Fatima Mernisi's wonderful biography, Dreams of Trespass, about her childhood in a domestic harem in Fez, Morocco. Mernisi was born in 1940, when women were already rebelling against enforced seclusion. Her mother no longer bought into the belief that harem walls protected her and her children from strange men walking the streets. The world beyond the gate was their obsession, and they dreamed of trespassing all the time, she writes. Still, multiple permissions were required before the gatekeeper could let Mernisi's mother out. And even then, she had to be accompanied by a gaggle of other female relatives and a young male nephew, a grown woman, a woman of property, under the protection and authority of a boy. The only destinations permitted her were a shrine, her brother's house down the street, and the public baths. Though Mernisi's mother wouldn't have put it this way, she sensed that the social function of harems was dying out. Knowing that, she knew that they would soon become obsolete, and she made a promise to her daughter, Times are going to get better for women now. You and your sister will get a good education, and you'll walk freely in the streets and discover the world. Mernisi's father, on the other hand, focused on the ways in which a harem served society. For him, it was a mark of prestige that he made enough money to keep his wife at home. This idea has existed for centuries, and not just in the Middle and Far Eastern harems, but in Western societies as well. Think Don Draper in Mad Men, whose stay-at-home wife kept a perfect home, served perfect meals, and raised perfect children. Harems were also safe havens for vulnerable women, clearly a benefit to any society. 
The Munisi compound was a refuge for divorced or widowed aunts and cousins. Female relatives in conflict with their husbands were welcomed. A short stay at the harem often improved their bargaining position when they got back home. But there were also wives who had been abandoned or divorced, and they moved in to stay. Munisi writes, Father always worried when someone attacked the institution of harem life. Where will the troubled women go? In her book, Guests of the Sheikh, Elizabeth Fernea writes about her two years in the Iraqi village of El Nara, where each of the sheikh's three wives lived and raised their children in his harem. They too had separate apartments built around a communal courtyard, where all the children from all the wives played together. The eldest watched over the youngest, modeling skills like sewing, cooking, doing chores, or going to the public baths. Boys enjoyed privileges not extended to girls, like more free time for play and more leeway to talk back to parents, prefiguring male privilege at the adult level. The sheikh's wives were required to wear the abaya, a head-to-toe covering of black fabric that completely hid even obliterated their identities. It's as if they were required to bring the harem with them when they stepped outside of it. They were forbidden to speak to any man outside their family. Wives and girls received minimal education at Quran school, while sons could go to university and have careers. It was perfectly acceptable for a husband to beat his wife or wives for disobedience. When Fernea invited one of the sheikh's nieces on a drive into the country with two men of her acquaintance, she inadvertently put the girl's life at risk. As the education of women has advanced in Muslim countries, harem life has become much rarer. Like all cultural inventions, the practice played an important part in the creation of meaningful social lives, until it didn't. But female seclusion behind the veil, abaya or burqa, is still the norm, and its function and future remain to be seen. The resurgence of the Taliban in Afghanistan resurrected female disempowerment, though most modern Afghani women have to be coerced into compliance. We don't have to go far afield to find divisive cultural practices and values. Our own country is split over issues like gender identity, marriage equality, forced pregnancies, climate change, fossil fuels. If there isn't a valid social function to these practices, they can only result in division and conflict, which unfortunately is now all too normal. Thanks for listening. I'm Emily Pick, and I voice the Anthro Girl. Our anthropologist is S.B. Swenson, Ph.D., University of Virginia. This podcast was created and produced by me, Dr. Swenson, and our writer, Edith Swenson. Check the show notes for a bibliography of the work cited in today's episode. And if you enjoyed our visit today, tell your friends.